Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 292 for March 16th, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 113. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMeeting, the affordable way to meet with clients and colleagues. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com. And by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. For a free trial of the Astaro Security Gateway in your business, call 877-4-ASTARO. And by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and privacy online with the man of the hour, Mr. GRC, Steve Gibson. Gibson Research or Corporation. hour and a half, as the case yeah. may be. <laughs> or two, you know, whatever. Yeah, but whatever. The man, of, the man of the next, you know, 90 minutes or so. Hey, and Steve. We spared, we spared our listeners about 40 minutes of you and me yabbering about Japan and iPad 2. So, <laughs> and and uh, diets. <laughs> and diets, which is the yes. thing they least wanted to hear. what is it that makes you fat? Yeah. But so. uh, but I think that uh, the earthquake stuff is very interesting. And I just I, maybe just a little footnote. You found a very good explanation of uh, how these boiling water reactors, uh, the kind that are in Japan, uh, uh, work. Kind With of it almost looks diagrams. like, yeah, like how things work. Uh, it's, uh, it's on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission website, nrc.gov. They have, a, I guess, a lot of teaching material, student I material. I did tweet all this also. So if anyone wants to get links for all this, you can just put in, uh, you know, go to twitter.com and slash SGGRC, which will be my Twitter feed. And you can scroll back a little ways. Uh, and I, because I tweeted all these links to the stuff that I was finding. The, the, the MIT um, article that you found, that really great blog posting, Leo, and also this diagram. Yeah. And, you know, this is the... Uh, just the uh, one last point, which is that uh, those of us who are technically inclined, which I presume is anybody listening to security now for sure, just want to know facts. Yes. Uh, and the problem is there's so much uh, polemic and rhetoric associated with your position, whether pro or anti-nuke. And I just want to know the facts. And the blondes are nice to watch on the news, but they're you know nitwits. they're not they're not nuclear scientists. Uh, you know, even CNN, no, nobody has really done a very good job. I, I saw an explanation of how our nuclear reactor works yesterday that was just wrong. Uh, uh, and and look, you know, uh, we were talking. Steve and I were talking. I remember when I first got an Atari, there was a great nuclear simulator called Scram. Uh, and it was very simplified, of course. But you had to be—you were—you were a nuclear operator, nuclear uh, uh, generator operator, and you had to run the rods and scram the rods and so forth. It was so much fun, um, and I learned a lot on the basics of how a nuclear generator works. I wish that game were still around. I'm gonna see if I could find it. Um, maybe an, maybe an emulator would have it. I was reminded that I that I tweeted this morning. I found a really a link to a really neat 
professor, nuclear professor guy who's got hair like Einstein. And, and I, and my, and <laughs> well, that's and his I, credential right there. <laughs> and I tweeted, I said, uh, if, you know, for your less techie friends, because I'm, you know, people who follow me probably are along on the techie side. For your less techie friends, you might want to send this link to a kindly <laughs> nuclear professor Does explaining have a little German accent? <laughs> very simply how reactors work. He did a great job talking about the, the boiling water reactors in Japan. So this was I, the uh, this was the game. These are screenshots. Chris Crawford did it, who was a very famous simulator designer. Um and I, you know, you learn a lot from stuff like this. I wish these kinds of games were still around. You know, simulations actually are one are very, very powerful yeah. for for teaching these kinds of concepts. I mean, yeah. simulations of anything, physics simulations, yep. for example. Yep. I'll see if I can find a uh, a. Uh, it would be really fun to find an emulator. I know there's eight bit emulators, Atari eight bit emulators out there. So I'm sure I can find. If I can find the ROM, I could probably get it working. That'd be kind of fun. Somebody should make a an Atari emulator for the iPad. Wouldn't that be fun? Apple would yeah, never approve it. Yeah, to run all the classic stuff. Yeah, Apple would never approve it unless Atari did it. So let's get to the news. This is a Q&A session, right? Yep, number 113. And, but, uh, but that's security now, number 292. So don't let that 113 throw you off. Very confusing. <laughs> we got two numbers. <laughs> uh, but we know you can handle numbers. You, that's, what, that's why we do it. Um, before we get to uh, security news, security updates, uh, errata, and this, that so forth, let me just quickly mention our friends at uh, Citrix and the folks who do go to meeting. Because I tell you, after, uh, after doing a lot of traveling... Uh, I always I always say thank God for go to meeting. I don't have to do all that business traveling that I might have to do. I love going to things like South by Southwest. We just came back from there. Had some great coverage. You'll find it in our specials feed. But if I had to then now go on a business trip, I would be just saying, please let me stay home. That's what go to meeting is so great for. American Express says the average business trip costs a thousand dollars. That seems cheap to me. Airfare, hotel, taxis, and not to mention the stress and strain of air travel these days. Instead of having another in-person meeting, have a go-to meeting instead. Just $49 a month. That's one-twentieth the cost. And as many meetings as you want all month long for as long as you want. And it includes teleconferencing and voice over IP. They've got a great iPad app, by the way, which means you can have a meeting on your iPad, which is so cool. GoToMeeting works on Macs or PCs. Trivial to install. That's important if you're trying to get a client to see your sales presentation, it can't be that you can't make them jump through hoops. All you do is you send them a link. It works with Outlook. You can actually in integrate it right into your email. They'll get an invitation that includes the teleconference number, a, a link. 30 seconds later, they're seeing your screen. We actually use it for teleconferences even if we don't need screen sharing just because it's a great way to teleconference, to set up a teleconference. And then if it should happen that we have something to, to look at or collaborate on, we've got it there. I just love GoToMeeting. I know you will too. Replace business trips, save money, save time, save stress. Try it free for 30 days. Go to meeting.com slash, is that, let me check and see. It says now. Go to meeting.com. And I don't know what the URL is. I'll find out for you before the end of the show. It says now right there, and I think that that's probably correct because I never make mistakes. All right, Steve, <laughs> you know me. I'm perfect. Steve, what's the latest security news? Speaking of perfect. <laughs> I, I think you should settle for amazing, Leo. You are amazing. <laughs> amazing, if not perfect. Imperfectly amazing. We'll be happy with amazing. <laughs> so the good news is nothing happened. Yay. <laughs> In terms of updates since the pre-pwned-to-own flurry Yay. of updates last week. We're going to cover in detail the consequences of the pwned-to-own competition uh, 
shortly. Uh, but no updates to talk of, all, to, 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 to speak of, although uh, we need some. Because sh- exactly as I predicted, and shortly after we recorded last week's podcast, I got a little advisory update from Microsoft. They, they send email when they, when they revise their existing updates. And I thought, hmm, what is that? So I went to the advisory update, um, and under why was this advisory revised on March 11th, 2011, it says Microsoft revised this advisory to announce that Microsoft is aware of public proof of concept code being used in limited targeted attacks. Oh, no. Users that, well, no, not, this is before that. This was... The MHTML vulnerability, which we commented on them on Tuesday, not patching. They fixed. They fixed. You know, other stuff. They and and and, well, is it in IE nine? Because IE nine is now official. Maybe Um, they figured. Well, we'll just update IE. um, It's actually not. It's in a library in Windows. The it it, so it's 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 everywhere. Exactly. It's accessible through the browser, but it's a DL, it's a Windows DLL that you get to through the browser and you exploit through the browser. So it's very likely that, that you can get to it through IE9 as well. Right. Now, um, again, I, the, mo- the moment this happened, I tweeted about it. So that's one way you can, you can find the link. There is a fix it. And so I will say again, as I said last week, when I said last week, we're probably going to start shortly see exploits of this. Well, now we are. And the fix it simply disables scripting in the MHTML pseudo protocol. And the MHTML is MIME HTML, which is, which is Microsoft's own format for storing a whole page in a single archive. You know, the, 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 so the it's like their web archive. Their web archive format. It is, is their web archive format, ah, which is okay. dot dot mht right. or something. Right. Um, and so that's the file format. So you could argue that we never needed scripting in that anyway. You know, you you want to snapshot a page. You you wonder why you need to run JavaScript in that. It's a vulnerability there that is the problem. So turn it off. I mean, and leave it off. Even after they fix it, you could leave it off because Lord knows whether they're actually going to fix it. So, or or let alone when. So, you know, we'll probably wait a month for this to get fixed. So there is a fix it that you can access to just simply disable the scripting for this particular file format and everyone should do it. So, because it just, you know, no one needs it on. Even if you have IE9, even if you've updated, you should yes. do this. Because it's not, yeah. it's, yeah, okay. Yes, it's going to be, it's browser agnostic across all their OSs and all their browsers. Um, meanwhile, uh, beginning of this week, Monday, Adobe uh, confessed to knowing of a new Flash zero-day exploit. Our old friend, the authplay.dll is back for more, we keep talking about authplay.dll mm-hmm. in various ways that you can access it. In this case, it can be accessed through Flash, and there are exploits in the wild. It's, it's exploited with a shockwave Flash embedded in a Microsoft Excel file delivered as an email attachment. So when Windows 
views this Microsoft Excel file. It it allows the Shockwave Flash to to run, and because you've got Flash installed, and and that accesses this authplay.dll vulnerability, and it's across everything: Windows, Mac, Linux, Solaris, and um, even Chrome and Android platforms. So nothing to do about it at this point, unfortunately. Um, hopefully, Adobe will get us a fix shortly. I think they'll do it out of band. Their the quarterly update concept isn't really working very well. Um, they're saying, <laughs> it they're only saying, works if you only have bugs every three months. You see, that's saying the- on their page. They said, "Well, because our 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 ten dot x, I think it was um." Was it Flash 10? I don't know. It wasn't Flash. It was Reader 10. The Reader 10 sandbox does contain this. We won't be updating that until July. And that's like, okay, wait, March, April, May, June. Okay, well, that's fine. No, they're saying that they're, there's containment there. So they're really trying to not update when they don't have to. But they're going to have to update Flash here any day now. So they are, they, are, they are working on a fix. So maybe next week we'll be talking about a fix for this. Um, in happy news, Twitter has added always on HTTPS to their site, Yay. much as Facebook has kind of, as we talked about last week, um, that they, they, they turn it off. Facebook, that is, turns it off um, if necessary. <laughs> the drop of a hat. <laughs> yes. But Twitter has it on. So that is a, that, so. What that does is it enforces an a, an HTTPS connection at Twitter.com. You normally own if if you were to go to Twitter with HTTP colon slash slash Twitter.com, you would be moved to HTTPS for the login to protect your login credentials. But then, as used to be the case with Gmail, you'd be logged. You'd be met, taken back to non-secure. Now on the on the settings page, the main setting page of Twitter, you at the very bottom of the page is a checkbox that is just says always use HTTPS, which everybody should go and check. Now the bad news is they haven't extended that over to mobile.twitter.com. So even if you have it checked on your login at twitter.com. You can log in at mobile.twitter.com and it won't be secure, but you can manually use HTTPS at mobile.twitter.com and it will be secure. So you're still responsible for doing that over on the mobile side. And they have said that they're going to work on integrating those two so that the setting, your main settings page at twitter.com will also have an effect over on mobile. Is that because mobile phones tend not to be fast enough for HTTPS or don't support it? Or um, Is there an issue with HTTPS on mobile? I can't imagine. Remember that we only it's only when you initially connect that there's any, there any, any overhead. HTTPS yeah. overhead. I just think that they must have server farms that are not integrated. Uh, and there isn't like a separate account settings over at mobile. So they just sort of haven't gotten there yet. I imagine that they'll in, they'll they'll cross enforce it uh, as soon as they're able to get around to it. Right. Um, and uh, I did want to note, uh, actually, this is thanks to uh, uh, someone uh, tweeting me, Simon Zarafa, 
um, who I think is in Wales, made a comment that while in your settings of Twitter, go over to the connections option page and just scan through all the apps that you have permitted to have access to your, your Twitter and remove the ones that you're no longer using. Um, I removed five. Yeah, that, really oh, good idea. Yeah, because remember that we, we're authenticating Twitter apps, and then so many, so often, we're like using different ones, and then we end up stop using those. I've switched over to TweetDeck. I gave up on Seismic because it was it was hosted on that horrible... Twitter's microphone. down right now, of course, so you can't do that, but... <laughs> <laughs> but when it comes back up... <laughs> For those who are you not know, listening live. And Twitter has deprecated these third-party apps because they don't want – you're not seeing the ads. So they're discouraged. They say, don't write any new ones. They're saying, well, if you already have one, okay. But they'd prefer you didn't use those. So I have a feeling in time those 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 new – those old apps will not you'll – be, you'll, be, you'll be using Twitter. I gave up. I was using Seismic for a while. I like Seismic. And, um, and they moved it over to Silverlight, which is just yeah. a – monster yeah. i mean it makes flash look good really <laughs> it's just horrible oh that's interesting it really uh, is it's big and it doesn't terminate when you shut things down and uh it's just awful so and anyway it, it stopped working reliably so i try and i see everyone's using tweet deck so i i thought i'd give that a shot and i'm i'm liking it a now lot. that's air though right that is on adobe air yes you can't win i know <laughs> <laughs> so um the pwn to own results from from Vancouver's... Oh, this, was, this was exactly as predicted. Yes. CanSec West Security Conference. Um, Safari collapsed in five seconds. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was a cackle. I apologize for cackling. And remember that Apple plugged 62 security yeah. holes that morning. Yeah. They should have plugged 63. Apparently. Um, I, Charlie I Miller wasn't worried. And nope. actually, he didn't do it. No, he didn't. Um, he did. He did join up with uh, another guy, Dion uh, uh, Blazakis, I think B L A Z A K I S Blazakis, and the and the two of them did a f- iPhone exploit the right. night before, working like a lot to make that happen. So so basically, Safari, i.e., iPhone, BlackBerry, all f- collapsed significantly. Neither Firefox nor Chrome did, although one researcher was a little annoyed because shortly before this, he had given um, Google a heads up on a cross-site scripting vulnerability, which was not previously known, which he could have used to score himself a, a Chrome exploit for Pwn to Own and 15 grand. As it is, he only got a hundred and uh, 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 what is it? Thirteen thirty-seven dollars. Well, how dare what? they? One thousand three hundred. <laughs> how dare they fix fix that exploit before Pwn to own? How dare they? And in fact, I think it was Charlie who did make a comment that this was sort of a, a downside of Pwn to own because it was tending to cause researchers to hold back well, their disclosures. Because it was worth fifteen grand, which is nothing to sneeze at. Well, and Google and, added twenty grand on a top for Chrome. Yes. So, you know, clearly uh, that was cockiness on Google's part. Yeah, but but they, justified. You know, they and Firefox <laughs> survived yeah. pwn to own. So, 
Um, it took Safari five seconds to fall, although in fairness, this was an exploit that was worked out well in advance right. so that essentially um, uh, the the guy who did it um, just walked up, plugged his code into um, Safari, and it collapsed. That's how it works. It's not yeah. like you, you sit – I think people think, you, oh, you sit down at the machine and you try stuff. No, they know exactly <laughs> what they're going to do. They give. They have a USB key. They plug it in. They go boom. Right. Yeah. Ha-ha. Ha-ha. Uh, I.E. 8 fell to Stephen Fewer, uh, who's got a, who's a small, I think it's a one-man security company, Harmony Security, he calls his company. Um, and his exploit was interesting because in order to do it, he had to chain three previously unknown, unpatched vulnerabilities together. The first two of them were to allow him to get past IE and Windows ASLR, the address space layout randomization protection, and DEP, the data execution protection, which we've covered in depth in past episodes. And then the third one, which he said was extremely difficult to exploit, got him out of the sandbox, which protects IE8. Wow. He got out of IE, busted out of IE8's sandbox and wrote a file to the system which demonstrates that IE8 sandbox was no longer in control. And Microsoft immediately responded, we're already on the case. And I thought, well, I feel so much better. No. <laughs> oh, joy. We'll fix that next week. Maybe the week we're after. We're on it. Some, so, sometime. Yeah. It'll be fixed. Exactly. Um, and then BlackBerry uh, was brought down by the BlackBerry browser by a multinational team uh, who attacked the torch and in seconds had it taken down. So, and Rim said, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're going to fix that too. So it's like, okay. It's fine. really interesting. Wow. I did want to note, as you mentioned before, that IE9 was released a few days ago, Monday of this week. Um, it's in, you know, final for download. Um, it's got so much in it that I'm going to give it a deep security review podcast, which we will will do uh, maybe next week. Oh, great! Um, I think it you know it it needs that. Um, and I did notice that at the last minute, a do not track header was added after the RC apparently, which is really good news. I mean, I I like that solution. That's of course the one that we've talked about that Firefox has, where. Every query just says, please don't track me, essentially. Now, IE9 is already coming under attack for their, their, their tracking blocker lists, which I will, will go, we, we talked about before, but as part of my full IE9 security review, I'll talk about it in detail. The problem is that users can load multiple lists, which both block and permit sites. And the problem is that the... Logic that's used is such that if you load a list which allows, that overrides any other list which blocks, which sort of seems like the wrong thing to do. So I'm going to look into it in more depth, and we will we'll cover it thoroughly. But mm. I did want to acknowledge IE9. I mean, it is a, a big step forward. I mean, this is a worthwhile browser. It might argue that it's about 10 years too late, but... It's Microsoft has really moved the bar and uh, has created a, a very nice browser, which I think is, you know, state of the art now, along with Chrome and Firefox, which I think are the are the now we have three 
state-of-the-art good browsers. I don't know if IE9, I don't think it's going to win me back because I, it, you know, it took a lot to pry me away from right. it. Right. I'm I'm over on Firefox now and I'm very happy. I know that you're over on Chrome and Yeah, I love happy. Chrome and you know, I guess the results of Pwn to Own kind of justify our yes. support of either yes. of those, you know. Good point. Our two browsers yeah. did not collapse. You have no script, which is a really good reason to uh, use Firefox. I don't know. I do, although a... there there is a script manager now for Chrome. Oh, there is. Which, oh, good. Yes. I'll get it. Okay. Yes. It's uh What's it called, you know? I don't remember the name. It's similar to no script okay. in name. But there is one for, for Chrome. I will, I will check it out. I'm sure the chat room will tell me in just a second. And our friends, yes, our friends. It's called Not at, Script. <laughs> that's, that's exactly. I knew. I remembered the name very much like No Script. Chat room says Not Script. <laughs> yep. Not Script for Chrome. Yeah. And again, I do recommend, I know you don't like this selective scripting. One, you know, I'm using the temporarily allow scripting so often that I'm wishing now that no script can. Uh, are you listening to this, Giorgio? That no script had a could, could give me the option of a toolbar button. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. Instead of doing the right click and yep. then temporarily, just give me a button that says temporarily trust this site because I don't want to be adding sites all the time to my trusted list that I'm probably never going to go back to again. You know, there there are sites like you know Amazon and eBay and. And, you know, Twitter and, and lots of sites that I'm using frequently, I would like to have on my permanent trust list. But most of the time, I'm just somewhere that I'm probably never going to go. I'm browsing around. And those that's where you want script blocked by default. And I look and I go, okay, looks like it's not come up. So then I just, it'd be easy. It'd be nice if it were easier to, you know, temporarily add a site to the trust list sometime so. we will talk about hashbang because this is something that twitter uses um a lot of sites are starting to use this as a way of making an ajaxy page and it, when you go to twitter.com i don't know if you've noticed this because uh, you probably allow, you have to allow scripting or you can't even load twitter because huh. instead of getting any html at all you get a big lump of javascript uh. which then renders the page after the hashbang and this is being used more and more widely. Um, Gawker's using it uh, on their sites. And uh, it really breaks the Internet in some very interesting ways and absolutely requires JavaScript. You don't get anything. There's no wow. graceful degradation. You get nothing. And that's so dumb because all you have to do is put, I mean, put something in NoScript tags right and and then you you see that well the if, reason they don't is they want these dynamic pages that you know if you go to twitter it's rolling and scrolling and things are updating and all of these chunks are all are all loaded as ajax chunks instead yep. of html rendered so it would it would remove considerable amount of uh functionality but i think they have to, I, I don't you know well so it's a so, big debate going on in so the i guess community. what you're saying is that they they have gotten themselves so committed to scripting that the site isn't isn't at all usable right with with javascript disabled and i think probably that's going to happen you know facebook and yes. everybody else because they want these you know it's web apps they want their yeah. their page to be not a page as we understand a web page but to be an app i um i'm a javascript programmer now you have to be i no, i mean i in the last few weeks i Started oh, pretty good. much from cold, and I have a JavaScript page running on GRC. Wow! A, a capabilities and compatibility test page, which I'll be making public. Well, you can see how powerful it is. I mean, it's incredible. It's 
it's a it's a very useful system. And you're right when you add um, this htm HTTP query facility, which it's which we've had since IE five, that allows JavaScript to query back to the server right. and get other things. You're right that instead of this notion of going from like you know clicking links to go from page to page. The, the the state of the art approach now is that you go to a site which is which is an application very much like like flash enabled sites used to be where you sort of stay on the same page and just browse around within you know in that one page using flash to take you to different things and and do different things now that same that same capability uh, javascript and and the document object model and DHTML and all that <clears throat> has come so far that it's possible now to do that without using Flash, just using scripting. So, yes, unfortunately, I think scripting is clearly the the, the way sites in, in the future are going to be written and built. You should look at uh, jQuery, and uh, which is, of course, a client-side library, and then Node.js, which is a server-side library. That's what these sites are using, mostly Node.js. It's very popular. Gives you great functionality, really cool web pages that totally <laughs> suck. <laughs> By the way, just uh, an update: uh, Tim O'Reilly just tweeted, "Twitter's back," but it, but it just got back. Has tweeted that uh, the Mark One nuclear reactor design used at the Fukushima plant caused GE scientists to quit in protest at the time. Uh, this is from ABC News. So fascinating okay. story still coming out, and I don't know. Again, you know. Yeah, exactly. But we got to, but there's a lot of information. We got to sift through it. I wish we're going to try to get some intelligent people on to discuss this at some point. So, <sighs> our friends from San Diego and the University of Washington, who we discussed last year hacking a car by hooking their laptop into the car's network, right, are back. Oh boy. They gave a presentation recently where they demonstrated three new means of hacking into existing cars. They used an undisclosed model of a 2009 auto, which, which they sort of deliberately used <clears throat> because it was an older car that was art, well, presumably less vulnerable than newer cars. They were able to take the car over by playing music. <laughs> now, this shouldn't surprise anyone. Oh, boy. Because all this means is there was a vulnerability in the player. CD player yeah. software, a buffer on a vulnerability that we're used to dealing with all the time on our PCs. And so a specially crafted MP3 file was able to to load a Trojan into the car's operating system, rewriting the firmware um, in order to give them control. They were also able to get into the car by Bluetooth and by cell phone. Whoa, so boy, that's not good. So this is not good. I mean, this, again, it ought to surprise nobody. No one who's listened to this podcast ought to be surprised. I mean, these, these are rolling computers. And unfortunately, <clears throat> they're, it's important, just like nuclear reactors, to have safety systems that function correctly. It's important that our rolling 
high-speed, multi-ton, you know, com- computers on wheels be secure. And it's incredibly difficult, if not well-nigh impossible, to, to achieve that. And these guys have shown that it's possible. Now, I did want to back off from this a little bit and say that they had made a specific comment, which I thought was important to understand, that these attacks are extremely car-specific. That is, no attack that they designed would work on any other car. So it's, it's not like Windows where we're all using IE8 or we're using Windows 7 and we have a you know, massive code base which is is almost universal. In this case, you know, it would only work on a given make, model, and year of car with specific version of firmware. You know, so, so they specifically found vulnerabilities in an instance of a car rather than something much more weaponized. But the other thing we know is that over time, these things get easier. I mean, these... Attacks mature. If you want an example of maturity, just look at Stuxnet, which we covered last week. So, so this is something to um, that we'll certainly be keeping an eye on. Many people wrote to me and tweeted about this, you know, you know, music taking over a car. And it's like, uh huh. Well, who would be surprised by that? Amazing. They're com- they're computers, and yep. and yep. and they're going to have buffer overruns, and that allows code to get injected, and and that's what happens. Well, the only surprise is you'd think that the car computer would be isolated completely from the music player. It's more expensive to do that. Mm. Well, they will and, be in future, I hope. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You you would hope that, and in fact, in the photo, they showed their the instrumentation. You know, uh, pwned. Uh, was the, the word showing Eish. in the in the instrumentation of of the car, and remember that they were able to to stop and brake and and literally wow. really over you know control the car. That's so so horrible con- control oh. its functioning. So we, I think we really are going to need. Well, you know, there's a commercial on TV now where dad's talking to his teenage daughter and he says, right. hold on a second, you can borrow the car, let me start it for you. Yeah. And he presses a button and the car starts. And I just think, oh, <laughs> help us. Oh, <laughs> 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 yeah, just using Bluetooth. You know, Bluetooth's secure. There's no problem there. Oh, God. Well, finally in the news, the U.S. Pacific Command, I thought this was interesting, a little, a little unrelated story, but interesting, requested 13... High-profile sites be blocked across the Department of Defense's .mil network in Japan hmm. to conserve bandwidth. <laughs> YouTube. YouTube, <laughs> Google Video, Amazon, ESPN, <laughs> eBay, DoubleClick, iWonder, Pandora, StreamWorld, MTV, <laughs> iFilm, MySpace, and Meta Cafe. I love it's it. It's like, okay, now wait a minute. That's all the fun stuff. Exactly. But so really, it is a military network. This is the dot mill network, and they're streaming Pandora. They're having like, fun. Well, hey, look, they're in an office. They, they want some I, music. They need some tunes. I'm glad yeah. they didn't block Twit. You can keep listening to Twit until they discover us. And Facebook. <laughs> they didn't block Facebook. It's not on the list. Well, it's it's probably, like, you know, most of those are rich media sites. They're video and all, or music sites. So they're, those are the ones that use a lot of bandwidth. Facebook yeah. probably isn't as bad. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, YouTube, Google Video. Yeah. I Pandora. Guess a- a- Amazon now has video streaming that they're offering. Wow. <laughs> so, anyway... <laughs> Sorry, they, guys. They make, you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to work over there in Japan. I think the generals use Facebook, so they didn't. Want to <laughs> That's how the generals stay in touch. Um, and one little bit of errata that I wanted to mention: when I logged into Google Docs this morning in order to prepare the document that you and I are looking at right now, Leo, and which you'll post. Yeah, already have. I was. I got a little reminder screen that said. Imagine how it would feel if you weren't just able to log on. Oh, yeah. Good. Good for them. That wouldn't be good, would it? And I said to myself, no, no it wouldn't. And they said, <laughs> here's the information that we have for you, which is used for access recovery. Is it still correct? Good. Brilliant. And I thought, wow. Brilliant. <laughs> Love very, them. Very cool yep. that they were proactive in, in like saying every so often, is this information still correct? That's just good sysadmining. I mean, that's what, uh, you know, in a business, your sysadmin will go around and say every three months, change your password, we're, we're going to lock you out unless you do. Uh, Google has some really, uh, you know, the problem with recovering your password with Google, if you don't set up things like a tech, an SMS number, is it's really tough. So they're proactively saying, make sure you have a, fo- you know, a, a phone number that we can SMS and make yes. sure it's up to date. And yes. and this is advice to everybody. If you don't have that secondary uh, means of notification besides your email, because if somebody hacks your account, unless they get your phone, that SMS, you know, I guess they could change the SMS. But that's why you want to check it regularly. Yeah, I was very impressed that, that Google proactively reminded yeah, me. I, we'd like to see more of that. I, th- I think they can't change the SMS unless they send you a text message saying... Do you have this phone? Is this the, a new phone? I think they, I hope they would do that. Yeah. Very important. And speaking of support, yeah. I got a nice note, uh, a different twist on Spinrite from a listener, Anthony Ungerman. He said, hi, Steve, I purchased your software about two years ago in support of Security Now. I had no immediate need for Spinrite, so I soon forgot about it. <laughs> That's said, fine. Well, well, this Friday... I had a few drives that needed some spin writing, but I could not find my download codes anywhere. I sent your support alias a help with three exclamation points email at 7.15 p.m. on a Friday night. Wow. By 7.26, I had received a reply containing the codes I needed. Mm. The download took a second and the system created... A bootable CD a few minutes later. I had Spinrite up and grinding away by 7.45 p.m. Isn't that awesome? And I made the 8 p.m. date with my family for a Friday night movie. Do me a favor and call Dell, Linksys, etc. <laughs> Let them know. And teach them how to do support. Yes. It would be more than likely... It would have. It would more than likely have taken three phone calls and a lot of waiting to get the same level of service. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Anthony. Isn't that great? And thanks for sharing that. Now, note. is that automated, or do you have a tech guy? No, sitting that's there? Greg who checked his email awesome. and uh, and probably sent it all over to Sue, and she checked hers, and she looked him up in our database and said, "Oh yeah, here he is." And and then we sent him email containing his download information. Isn't that great when you have a, a great team that uh, ah. is just there and works hard and. They're the best. Love it. Hey, you know, we were, uh, I missed this in Austin. Um, you know about B-Sides? Have you ever heard about B-Sides? 
It's a great, no. oh, it's a wonderful security conference, kind of um, unconference uh, that they have all over the place. If you Google B-Sides, you'll find it. And they had one at South by Southwest. Astaro is one of the big sponsors of this, and that's why I mentioned it. Astaro is, of course, our sponsor as well and has been since practically day one of the Twit Network. Our first sponsor, our longest lasting sponsor and people we love. Um, I'm really, uh, I, I'm so bummed because they were demoing their new um, wireless access point, their new secure wireless access point, and the ASG320. We're going to, uh, in the new studio, we've been talking with Astaro uh, and our, our uh, tech guy, our IT guy, we're going to have, I believe, we're going to have dual 320s, uh, not just for security, of course, but, but because these are our security devices, but also uh, for bandwidth shaping mm. so that we can guarantee priority to the stream nice. signals and stuff. It's, yes. I mean, these things are amazing. And then we're going to have secure wireless access using the new uh, access points from Astaro. Astaro is just a great company with a total commitment to security, but also to sharing information about security that's why they do these b-sides they support the b-sides um that's why uh you know they use a, the best in class in open source as well as commercial software to protect you uh they are just a great company and i'm so proud uh to be associated with them if you are looking we're going to build our our next infrastructure uh on astaro security gateways if you're thinking about doing the same you can get a free demo unit in your place of business by calling one eight seven seven, the number four A S T A R O eight seven seven four Astaro. That's eight seven seven four two seven eight two seven six. They'll send a demo unit out. Uh, the three dual three. The nice thing about Astaro is they have this kind of um, uh, I don't know what they call it, but I guess they call it active active clustering. It's like uh, without any additional load balancing, you can put in additional security gateways to handle more network traffic. So we're putting in dual 320s also for failover. So we have multiple uh, Internet access points, I think three or four, all going through the 320s with instant failover if one of them should die. I mean, I, we're just building the most incredible network thanks to Astaro. And I just want you to take a look at Astaro in your uh, business and, by the way, if you're a home user, you can totally use Astaro at home. In fact, it's free for non-commercial use. They have a VMware uh, appliance you can get at VMware, uh, one of the most popular VMware appliances out there. You can even download the software at astaro.com slash security now, put it on a you know any PC, and there you got it, the ultimate unified threat management in your house. They even give you, they used to charge 79 euros for the Astaro up-to-date the, a year for the Astaro up-to-date because uh, the updates are key, of course, as you well know, for security. That's even free for non-commercial users now. They, it's just incredible. I want you to check it out. ASTARO.com. Uh, that's where we sent Russell, our uh, IT, our new uh, IT consultant, out. And he had been using, an, I won't say the other model. He'd been using another uh, UTM, and he was blown away. I said, we're going to use a star, right? He said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. Or call 877, the number four, a star. It's the best. I can tell you we're running our business on it. That's how good it is. Steve Gibson, I have got questions if you have answers. You have to look at this professor. Can, can, can you real quick? Yeah, what is, to, his, what is his uh, URL? Go to twitter.com slash S-G-G-R-C. Okay, that's your Twitter handle. All right. Get my feed. Yep. And it's the the most recent link. All right. Oh, you have to. I think you have to type HTTPS now to get. It's down again. Thank you, Twitter. Uh. <laughs> you see, by the way, that hash bang in there. Uh, so if you type SGGRC, it adds that hash bang to render the page. 
And so that's what we were talking about with it. It's, it basically is a lump of JavaScript you'll see that comes in, and then the page is rendered. Um, so you enter SGGRC, uh, but it, it – so apparently the servers are enough up to give me the hash bang, but, not, so, but so, not the data. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just put in twitter.com slash SGGRC. Yeah. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> that's what I put in. Uh, and, it, and, and it comes right up. Uh, is it coming up uh, for you? No. Yeah. Maybe it's just our network. But your Twitter doesn't like me. Ah, okay. I'll get it for before the end of the show. I'll get it. Get it's, you. Just, it's a. It's a little. It's a. The, and I would give you the link, but it's a YouTube shortcut, and I couldn't right. even begin to. I would get it, that for you. I would put it in the show oh, notes. The guy, too. he's just wonderful. I hope he's he has just, a good, he's got the best hair. Good trim and accent. Somebody said. He said. Uh, somebody sent back to me. He says, "Well, that guy explains things as clearly as you do, but he sure has a lot more hair than you do." <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should grow your hair out there. You should grow it out, and maybe have a German accent. That would be I don't very think he's impressive. He's ever cut his hair. That that crazy Einstein guy. Anyways, well, he's gets, gets a really nice it. presentation. I love it. It's not Cliff Stoll, is it? Uh, uh, he, he, we used to have him on uh, Call for Help. He wrote a book called The Cuckoo's Egg, where he talked about tracking down. Uh, okay, if you go to YouTube and put in, I got the link from our chat room. Oh, chat room is chat room. You rock. He's just wonderful. Chat room rocks. Nuclear reactors in Japan. Oh my God! Look at his hair. That's great. Oh my God! That's fantastic. He does a great. And in fact, his desktop. You can see it toward the beginning. The, the screen blanker kicks on after a while, but you, his, his desktop looks a bit like mine. You know, basically covered with icons. It's this like, is great. Oh, and you liked the uh, his description of how oh, he does a beautiful job and really covers the whole thing in about eight minutes. Fantastic. I have quite a personal interest in this because I went to Sendai six years ago. This is I great. All right. I, we'll put the link to that in our show notes. And uh, and uh, you could just search for Let me just see what you would search for. You go to YouTube.com and search for nuclear reactors in Japan. It's from probably bring it Periodic up. Videos is the, uh, is the YouTube channel. Periodic Videos. Uh, it's, this is actually kind of neat. The Periodic Table of Videos. And he's got from the his University tie, of Nottingham. His tie. At one, at one point, you, 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 we're looking down at the table because he's got some balls and he's showing how neutrons split atoms. And you can see his tie is the periodic table. I mean, oh, <laughs> this is a, that's my kind of guy. He's Look great. at these guys. So, yeah, in fact, if you go to periodicvideos.com, all the videos are here. And the very first one is Nuclear Japan. So, this ah. is the University of Nottingham in England, which is a great engineering school, very well known engineering school. So, good. Periodicvideos.com. Uh, fantastic. I can't wait to uh, watch that. Maybe, you know what we'll do for those of you watching the live stream right after this show, in between this show and this week in Google, we'll run that video because it's only eight minutes long. Yeah. Are you ready for a question, Steve? Let's go. Question one from Chicago, Illinois. Jeff says, I wonder about reverse DNS. Steve and all, I recently found the podcast of Security Now. I'm enjoying them, learning a lot. Thank you. Appreciate that, Jeff. I did have one question about the reverse DNS message under the Shields Up Proceed page. It was, quote, the text below might uniquely identify you on the Internet. One time it showed me no listing, and it was rated as a good thing. Then, after an hour or so, my DSL or ISP listing was on that page, his, 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 uh, his own IP address, I presume, which I guess is bad. Someone could track your descriptors. What would keep this IP DSL listing from showing up to begin with? And why would it later show up when I did a Shields Up scan? I did switch to a dual boot with Linux, WinXP. Maybe that has something to do with it. 
Keep up the good work, and thanks, Jeff in Illinois. I've seen this before. So you do a reverse DNS lookup on his IP address. Yeah, it's sort of as part of what Shields Up does uh, for sort of sort of as as a privacy heads up. I check the reverse DNS of everyone connecting and just show them what theirs what theirs is. In some cases, it's nothing but their IP address, like with the digits reversed, and then a suffix of, you know, their their ISP or or something else. But in some cases, it looks more like an account name, which is even though their IP address might be changing, their reverse DNS doesn't change. That is, it does actually uniquely identify them. And so it's, so it's a machine name in effect. It, exa- well, it's really, it's whatever the ISP wants it to be right. because the, the, the DNS provider determines when a reverse query is made what you know what they'll say what they'll send back so some ISPs actually do send back your account name i mean something that's like a serial number not your ip address with the with the octets reversed so because of that i show that on shields up well this question came up because um something happened to grc's DNS server, um, we got a bad update a, like a week ago from the root servers and reverse DNS failed oh, at GRC. And so I just wanted to bring it up in case this, and, and, and anyone else had seen this. It was a problem at our end, which ah, I tracked down and, okay. and fixed quickly, which is why it was coming and going and and may or may not have worked for him or, or seemed to change. It wasn't anything he did. It was just... You know, it's just we, a coincidence that he hit it, you when you were exactly yeah. uh, down and then not down, and we're no longer down. Right. Um, I've I've locked that so that it can't happen again. So it was just a it was a one off thing at our end, but it I is in my also, case. It's a, it's a, my IP address preceded by NetBlock and ended by DSLExtreme.com. So yes, and that's probably fairly typical. That's that's more common. Although in some cases, I do have people who so, so, sometimes send me what theirs is, and it's definitely like it's you know it's not their last name or anything, but it's something that if they go and change their IP address, it stayed the same. Yeah, interesting. Which means that anybody could lock on to that as something more persistent than an IP address. You know, we're we're talking about tracking and and, and identity and stuff, and this is just. A, a, a sort of an obscure but still present means that um, that in some cases some ISPs are, are not changing the way they should. We should point out, and I think this is a common area of concern that doesn't need to be, we should point out that every website you go to knows your public IP address. That's just automatic. At that moment. Yeah, at that moment. And all websites can do what you do, which is a reverse DNS, a query saying, well, who is this? So the issue is really your internet service provider because all sites can do what you've done. Although, actually... And many do. Our chat room, we do that all the time. If we want to block somebody, we can immediately right-click on somebody's name and see what their reverse DNS is. Except if they're running through a proxy, uh, a transparent proxy from an ISP... Don't tell them how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, I mean only if you're secure... Only if you're secure right. uh, with, with, an, with an SSL connection are you sure to bypass a transparent proxy that your ISP may have. 
Um, I always think of Cox for for some reason in our neighborhood because when I was developing sh- uh, Shields Up, I had my employees t- 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 uh, testing it, and we it's before we were using HTTPS in the very I mean the early days before this thing went public, and I realized, oops, I'm not testing them, I'm testing you know Cox Cox Networks transparent proxy. So of course, for ever since this one w- w- was released, we were smart enough to get around that. But it does mean that you may be seeing a proxy's IP rather than the user's right. IP unless they're establishing a secure connection. We won't tell our trolls that. And for what it's worth, anybody listening who wants to check their reverse IP, just go to Shields Up. And the first page you get will show you a page because I do reverse DNS on right. on the, the actual uh, I just showed that page for people watching on the video. Ah, cool. Uh, and by the way, our IRC server, we are so locked down on our IRC. We have such a great team of IRC uh, people, including some really good programmers. Uh, and apparently, I'm, I'm being told now by our mods that our IRC server checks for proxies and does, in fact, block them. Nice. Yeah, for that reason. It's not that we... we it's just that sometimes we get attacked, and so we need to make yes. sure that we can protect ourselves. Chris B. in Northern California wonders about Aegis Padlock hardware encryption and spinwrite. Well, well, well. He says, good afternoon, Mr. Steve Gibson. I've been a fan and devoted follower of security now since the very beginning. I've used Shields Up more times than I can shake a stick at. Uh, well, I'm curious about the security of hardware-based encryption, primarily related to Apricorn, or Apricorn, that's the Aegis Padlock software. Uh, they Actually, hardware, they may have USB and uh, eSATA right. drives. Also, being a SpinRight owner, I'm curious if hardware encryption will have any impact on SpinRight's operation. Uh, a short shout-out to, uh, to SpinRight's awesomeness. I've used SpinRight to fix an Arcos 605. That's the, uh, the little uh, tablet PC. Um, Prior to vacation, I used it to store pics from my vacation in Central America. And I can tell you the drive was so handy and convenient, it's worked flawlessly. Oh, I guess the Arcos is a, maybe it's a, one of those photo wallet things. And the value of SpinRite has just become priceless, in my honest opinion. Thanks so much, and keep up the excellent work. So um, hardware encrypted, and there's lots of different kinds of hardware encryption. In fact, even uh, ATA drives have a built-in encryption mechanism. Does that impact SpinRite? Well, some ATA drives have a built-in encryption, and I would, I guess, maybe more recent ATA drives do. Um, but that's we need to make sure we we separate that from just a password, right? So, a, a all, password, all ATI supports passwording. Yes, passwords ATA. have been available on on IDI, uh, IDE ATA drives for many years, yeah. and what that is is a a low-level lock on the rest um, access to the rest of the drive, which has to be provided. That, however, can be bypassed by the manufacturer and and even by the end user. You 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 if you forgot your drive password and you had locked the password, or for example, sometimes if you had a password-protected hard drive in a laptop and moved it to a to a, a different laptop or even to a desktop machine, that drive would still be locked and you would be unable to unlock it. So if you format the drive in, in, and wipe out the contents, that will, all, that will clear the password from one of those drives, allowing you to access it again. Although, of course, you've lost access to the data that you had there before. But, but manufacturers 
and presumably, you know, the three-letter agencies are able to remove a simple password protection and get at the, all of the data on the drive behind it. So what you really want is, is encryption of the drive, which is driven by a password and, and you know, by a, by a key that the drive has, which you're able to eradicate if you needed to, and that would make all of the drive's contents incomprehensible. So, I mean, mm. that's, that's, that's the way to do it right, right, is to, before you ever put any um, important data on the drive, you, you get a drive which has encryption at its interface, assign it a password, and at that point, you're good to go. Because, if, if that, because all the data that's written on the drive passes through this cipher on the way in. Well, this is what this apricorn.com, this, this Aegis padlock for USB and eSATA drives does. It's an external case which, which adds that in hardware to a drive that doesn't already have it. So, oh, I get it. I get so, it. So, yeah, so you're able to take any drive, a, 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 a USB or, or I, guess, I guess a USB or eSATA interface, and and I'm not sure what kind of drive it takes internally. It might be IDE or eSATA, for example, internally. And it performs hardware encryption on the fly in both directions. Apparently, there's some overhead in doing so because they have a pro version, which is way faster than their non-pro version. So it looks like theirs is not quite as transparent as you'd like. You'd like to have this happening on the fly at full speed so that you're not suffering any performance overhead in doing this. But the, the, the benefit of that is that when you remove that drive, it never had plain text stored on it. So you don't have to worry about all the scrubbing and recovery and emergency procedures and all that that people are worrying about more and more about, you know, leaving unencrypted data on the drive. Um. Okay. <laughs> oh, and it's for Spinrite. Spinrite runs right through it. It Spinrite, doesn't. It doesn't operate at that level. It doesn't operate at that level. It sees the sectors. It will recover them. That's why, in for example, Spinrite is is usable on a true encrypted drive too. Right. One that has been encrypted. Spinrite doesn't care about the fact that it can or cannot see the data. So you could run Spinrite either on the outside of it or even on the encrypted inside, right. which actually might be better because there you really do care about performance and, you, and it'll take you know, much longer to, if there's this hardware overhead that there seems to be on this particular brand, that would, Spinrite would run a lot, a lot slower through that drive's encryption than if you just plug the drive temporarily onto a motherboard and let Spinrite have at it. Right. That's um, important. I think people don't know... Sometimes that there the the diff, different drive recovery or data recovery levels. I mean, you operate at the sector level, at the hardware level, so encryption right. doesn't matter to you. Right. Uh, then you could operate at the file system level or at the actual data level. Encryption would affect those, of course, because and that's why, for example, we're able to fix TiVos and iPods right. and things. You don't it's care. Like, I don't care what it is. If it could it be spins, HFS. We'll, yeah. If it spins, we'll fix it. If there's a sector, <laughs> we, we can examine it. Uh, question three: Dick Nelson in Melbourne, Florida. Wonders about uncovering spoken phrases in encrypted oh, 
Voice over IP conversations. So cool. I hadn't seen this, but he, he, he points to an article at the, the Association for Computing Machinery, ACM.org. Okay. Um, so On VoIP encrypted calls. What is going uh, on there? Okay. So a number of people sent me tweets. Um, I'm going to read the abstract of the article. This was, this was uh, pu- published in the ACM, the Association for Computer... Computing Machinery. Machinery. That's right. Okay, their abstract says, although voice over IP, VoIP, is rapidly being adopted, its security implications are not yet fully understood. Since VoIP calls may traverse untrusted networks, packets should be encrypted to ensure confidentiality. Okay, so we're talking about encrypted VoIP. No biggie so far. However, (laughs) we show that it is possible to identify the phrases spoken within encrypted VOIP calls when the audio is encoded using variable bitrate codecs. Oh, interesting. Now think about that. That's all. When I read that, it's like, oh, yes. Because, <laughs> because the rate, the, the amount of compression you get varies is a function of the audio. Right. So, Ooh, so clever. So, Oh my God! It's so you can just, basically get a get you'll get a a, a frequency. You, well, you'll get a you, you the the amount of compression yeah. is a function of the audio. Yeah. So that means that the density of the VOIP varies with what is spoken. Right. So they go on to say to do so, we train a hidden Markov model using only knowledge of the phonetic pronunciation of words. So they're going to get something like that maybe would sound like... Well, so we... we <laughs> get a waveform, we, we, right? We, we train a hidden Markov model using yeah. only knowledge of the phonetic pronunciation of words, such as those provided by a dictionary, mm-hmm. and search packet sequences for instances of specified phrases. Right. Our approach does not require examples of the speaker's voice or even example recordings of the words that make up the target phrase. We evaluate our techniques on a standard speech recognition corpus containing over 2,000 phonetically rich phrases spoken by 630 distinct speakers from across the continental United States. Our results indicate that we can identify phrases... Within encrypted calls with an average accuracy of 50% and with an accuracy greater than 90% for some phrases. Clearly, such an attack calls into question the efficacy of current VOIP encryption standards. In addition, we examine the impact of various features of the underlying audio on our performance and discuss methods for mitigation. Okay, so what this means is... That I mean, this is just a brilliant side channel attack on crypto because – so what this says is that if you're using a, vari- a variable bit rate codec, the, the compression ratio is a function of what you say. That's mm-hmm. – you know, I mean, that would mm-hmm. be obvious. Mm-hmm. If, 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 so, so what they did was they were able they, – they had – they, they they took a spoken language corpus and basically trained a pattern recognizer to rec- to 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 map from what was spoken 
to the equivalent compression of what was spoken. And since, 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 they've, since encryption does not compress, the fact that it was encrypted didn't change its compression. So, so they took the encrypted data and looked at the compression that it had experienced and was able to, they were able to map it back to what must have been spoken if it had that much encryption. It's brilliant and, and just incredibly clever. So, so, uh, so we know that the amount of compression you're going to get is going to change with what, with what you say. Right. So it's possible to build a pattern recognizer, which is what this, this so-called hidden Markov model, you know, a, a, a Markov model is one means for, for doing probabilistic um, state uh, analysis of 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 um, something like speech, for example, it, it's been applied to to speech recognition. So basically, they're doing compression recognition. They're looking at the amount, the like the way compression varies with time, and they've and w- which encryption doesn't change because you compress, then you encrypt. So so they're able to look at the the rate at which compression occurred and develop and then their pattern recognizer is encryption blind it doesn't care about that it just sees how much compression you got and so with 50 percent accuracy and up to in some cases as much as 90 percent it is able to figure out what you're saying (laughs) it's like it's just brilliant it's fantastic yeah and actually in hindsight kind of obvious Exactly. Again, it's like one of those things where it's like, oh, yes. Of course. It's just perfect. <laughs> now, presumably, you could have VBR encryption that would pad it or some, you know, make it somehow not. But the, but the key would be to turn off VBR. I guess, though, that that's not typically uh, built into, uh, you know, no, any of the control you panels. Want, you, you want VBR right. because it's, it's more effective. You, yeah, yeah, you get so much better bandwidth yeah. use. Unfortunately, that gives away what you're saying. I, oh. I presume uh, we're using Skype. I would bet you it's using VBR. I don't know. Oh, I, it is a variable bitrate encoder. Absolutely. Yeah. Oops. So there. I bet you the NSA's known about that for a while. In fact, they're probably <laughs> a little peeved that this information got out. Somebody else figured Dang it out. Dang yep. it. <laughs> and imagine if you if you then had this this you know you you'd feed encrypted VoIP into this and. And even if it only got fifty percent right, you'd you'd you know you could be reading and like most of it's wrong, but you'd get a lots of snippets right. that would give you a lot of information. Half of the conversation contains a huge amount of data because most of what we're saying, especially on this podcast, is nonsense. Right. So, <laughs> no, not really. I'm sure it would sound like the teacher in Peanuts. There's a huge amount of redundancy in right. in normal natural language, of and is. so you yeah. can get around, you could get away with missing a lot of it and still pick up the content. Unbelievable! Wow. Just fascinating. Very cool. Yeah. Huh. Question five. This is what this is. You know, understand why Steve's excited about this. It's <laughs> it's kind of a cool insight. It's not that he thinks it's a great thing that it can happen. It's a very cool insight, and once you understand it, it's go, oh, well, of course you could do that. It's a brilliant hack. It's a brilliant yeah. hack. Question four from Hedrick in Utrecht, the Netherlands. 
He's been playing with something called PLCs. Our oh, PLCs at Stuxnet programs. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Greetings from Holland, Stephen Leo. As an intern, I've been doing research into security-related applications of PLCs. I can't tell you much more than that, I'm afraid. Uh-oh. I was therefore greatly interested in your Security Now episode on Stuxnet. As usual, I learned a lot. Steve, you're amazing. I mean, even somebody who's, this is their field. One thing I noticed was you mentioned that PLCs have their own network. What does PLC stand for, just to remind me? The Programmable Logic Controllers. Okay. Those are the things in the Siemens controllers, for instance. Yes, that, those are the things that run all the plants everywhere. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, the nu- and, and the nuclear plants. Right. Because PLCs have their own network, a Windows machine is needed to infect them. In my research, I've come across various PLC models, most, most of which supported many connection types to create a network. One of these connection types is Ethernet. In other words, a standard network cable. Uh. In my security research report, I mentioned there's a reasonable risk of someone misconfiguring a network by accident, not intentionally, or accidentally plugging a PLC into another network, say, one connected to the Internet. This is one of the reasons the company I was doing research for chose only to use models using uh, different connections than Ethernet. He says RS-485 in this case. I can imagine other companies finding the ease of Ethernet too attractive not to use. Mm. It does seem like that opens up a, a big hole. Another thought was that some system administrators might find it useful to connect the entire system to the Internet anyway so they could fix things without getting out of bed. <laughs> now, I don't like being a pessimist, though it seems second nature in the security field, but I'm sure there are plenty of PLCs, SCADA systems, and others, uh, other such networks that are in some way connected to the public Internet. This combined with the frightening malware advances you've told us about in last week's show does not make me feel so great about the whole thing. Anyway, just wanted to share my thoughts on the subject, and thank you, Steve, Leo, and all the other folks that make Security Now happen, and there's a big bunch of people for a great podcast. Regards, Hedrick, he is Maliki on the uh, Twit IRC, by the way, if you want to say hi to him. Uh, none of the PLCs I've worked with have any form of encryption while communicating over Ethernet. So usernames, passwords, etc. are sent in the clear over that network. <sighs> and they're typically all default, too, because right, this changes. Presu- presumption is, yeah, well, secure. no one can get to our network, yeah, so safe. we're just, you know, we right. don't want to... Uh, Bother with figuring out what our username and password right. is. We're here inside the uranium enriching plant. Who could, who could get in yeah. here? What could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Wow. Hey, let's take a break. We got four more great questions for Steve and, of course, four more great answers. But before we go any farther, I'd love to say hello to Squarespace.com, the secret behind exceptional websites. We were uh, we partying with Squarespace at uh, South by Southwest. They, had, they were great. They were doing different foods every day. They would have a food truck. And you'd come and, you know, when you go to South by Southwest, the whole deal is how can we stand a head and shoulders above the rest? Of course, Squarespace does not have to stand head and shoulders above the rest. They have absolutely, unequivocally, the best software and web hosting that's out there. And uh, I got I got a little, some sneak peeks at, at version 6, which is imminent. And wait till you see what they're doing. Now, the beauty of Squarespace is now you're, you're getting hosting from them and the software. Software is always up to date, so all security patches are automatically applied. When V6 comes out, you'll get it automatically. But look what they're doing right now. I mean, things like that great iPhone and iPad app, which allow you not only to post, but also to moderate comments and spam. Seamless importing from with all the standard APIs, movable type, WordPress, TypePad, and Blogger. And exporting, too, so you're never trapped. Of course, when you start a Squarespace site, and by the way, just you can do it if you go to squarespace.com slash security now just by clicking that green button. You do not need a credit card. You do not need anything but the name of your site 
a password, your email address, so they can send you your password if you forget it, and a little CAPTCHA, and you're in. You've got 14 days of the full Squarespace software. That means you can try everything. You could set up the ideal site. You've got two weeks to really bang on the thing, and then you could decide, is this what I want for my next website? A great tool for setting up sites for friends, family, local businesses that don't have websites yet. You can give them professional-looking websites with very little effort on your part. They'll love you. They'll love Squarespace. And if they decide to buy $12 a month, that including the best hosting in the business, I'm hosting. So you're fully hosted as well as, of course, the best software in the business. I want you to try it right now for free for two weeks. Take the tour at squarespace.com slash security now and click that green button when you're ready to go. They've got uh, the other thing I really like, video tutorials on every single feature so you'll never feel left out. You don't need to be a web developer to have a site that is would make a web developer proud. But if you are a developer, they also offer hooks into everything that you need. This would be great for anybody who wants to do websites for uh, other people as well. We don't mention this very often, but they have a great developer tool set for people who develop sites for others. Squarespace.com slash security now. Give it a try today. I know you're going to love it. Question five, Stephen Gibson, from Robert Osthelder in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. He wonders how to switch from, win to, wait, switch from Windows to Mac without losing all the security tools. Well, that's an interesting question. Never heard that one before, actually. I've been a long-time Windows user, go-to guy for IT support for my family's Windows machines. I've been considering purchasing a new laptop, since mine is getting very old and clunky, uh, doing some shopping around online. I'm very interested in the new MacBook Air, which I give two thumbs up for. I know you Me don't too. have Me too. Oh, you have one. I do. And oh, it's a beautiful it's machine. Elegant machine. Yeah. Uh, which runs Windows, by the way. <laughs> you, you don't have to. You could put Windows on it. I know people have been thrilled with it. Uh, the, the big reasons for being so interested in the air are the size, weight, build quality. Yeah, the, the build quality in the air is pretty spectacular. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, though, my, my concern about switching to Mac is figuring out where to get started when it comes to securing and protecting a device running the Mac OS. For example, on my Windows machine, I'm running Malwarebytes, SpyBot, Komodo Firewall, and AVG Antivirus. <laughs> The problem is I don't have a clue if those types of programs exist or whether or not they're needed on a Mac or in what combination. Would you mind giving me a quick rundown of how to get started keeping a Mac OS squeaky clean? Thank you for all the time and work you and Leo do on the Security Now podcast. I've been a regular listener for the past couple of years and a proud owner of SpinWrite since shortly after I started listening, which I have used to recover several drives. Best regards, Robert. Steve? So this is a this is a combined uh, answer for from you and me, Leo. Okay. Um, my, you know, not being a big Mac person, I don't have an answer um, on the details of third-party software for the Mac. I would say, however, immediately switch to Firefox or Chrome as, you know... I think we know that now. ...to Safari. <laughs> yes. And that the Mac's got a nice firewall built in that prevents external stuff from from getting in. So beyond that, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, the the advice for all operating systems, of course, is keep it up to date. And uh, Apple, right under the Apple, has a software update which will check. It'll do it automatically as well to make sure you've got all the patches. Immediately after Pwn to Own, another bunch of patches came in 
obviously to patch Charlie Miller, and it wasn't Charlie, but the the, the attack on Safari. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, we know that there are holes in uh, Apple's OS. I agree with you. Use Firefox or Chrome. I like Chrome on the on the Apple. I think it does a great job. Uh, there is in the system preference pane. That's the Apple equivalent of the control panel. A security button, which uh, gives you some useful security things. For instance, I always make sure that I require a password after sleep or screensaver. I disable automatic login. I use secure virtual memory. A lot of people uh, don't realize that uh, the virtual memory on your system, the page files, will contain unencrypted data. So it's this is built in. Apple also has built-in secure deletion uh, in its trash can. You might want to use that as well. File Vault secures the entire drive. It's a whole drive encryption. You may or may not want to use that. I don't use it. Um, you might want to prefer to use TrueCrypt or something like that. And you're right. Turn the firewall on. You see it's not on here, but turn the firewall on. And when you do turn on the firewall, let me just log in. This I like, by the way. Apple, kind of like user access control on Windows, requires administrator login to do, yep. to do anything of importance, including, and you could set it this way, and I do, including... Um, uh, the system preference panes require a password to unlock each system preference pane. That keeps kids and others with access from your computer from doing stuff. But you're right. I think the firewall is quite good. Go to the... Adv- and you see immediately, by the way, as soon as I turn on the firewall, do you want the application Axia DVD to accept incoming network connections? Mm-hmm. It's immediately notified me that there is a request for network access. I do know what that is. That's our audio uh, software. So I'm going to allow it. But you'll get those periodically. I think that's great. I always keep the firewall on. And you can even have it block all incoming connections except those required for basic Internet services, DHCP, Bonjour, and IPsec. At that point, your browser works, other stuff works, but all incoming connections are blocked. That's super secure. I don't know if you need to turn that on. You see I've allowed two connections. It will list these connections. You can add more manually or it'll do it automatically. It, this is another checkbox you may or may not want to have checked. Automatically allows signed software to receive incoming connections. Probably want to uncheck that so that you have explicit approval. Yep. And this you would like, Steve, enable stealth mode, which means don't respond or acknowledge attempts to access this computer, including ICMP packets. That's ping. Yep, I'm responsible for them using that word. Too. That's right. Stealth yep. mode is a Steve Gibson trademark. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> so I invented that for Shields Up. So I always turn that on when I'm in public. We're on our uh, protected network in here, so I don't have it on in here. But I actually, I'm going to turn it on. There's no, there's no. It doesn't seem to have any performance hit or. Uh, uh, no, it, it's it really is a good firewall. It's based on the uh, uh, BSD firewall, so it's a it's. A, I don't know if it's IP chains or or which firewall, but it's a very strong firewall. That's probably the most important thing you can do. There is security software. Uh, for the Mac, there, um, you know, ESET makes a program called Cybersecurity for the Mac. It's an antivirus, anti-spyware, uh, and there are other commercial programs at, like that. But there are also some free um, Mac antiviruses as well uh, that you can take a look at. Um, I personally don't run one. Um, I don't feel it's needed. People, uh, the pwn to own you. I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't know what to say about that except that uh, I use Chrome. Yeah, uh, but no guarantee that that's secure either. Most yeah, important I, I, thing to do on any OS is just update it as as often as needed. And in this day and age, the the entry vector for problems is going to questionable, sketchy sites with a browser that that um, is either not updated or uh, has you know zero day vulnerabilities right. that just that no one knows about. 
That's how they get you. And in every instance, it involves JavaScript. So I just, I, you know, the, if you have JavaScript disabled normally and you enable it selectively, you're really very safe these days. Yeah. So that's that's a that's a big addition. Uh, not script, I guess. I'm going to have to find that for a Chrome and put that on there. Yeah. I hate doing that because it really slows me down in my surfing. But on the other hand, I know. it uh, is the single most important thing you can do to protect yourself, right? It really is. Yeah. Uh, Chrome extension, Growlery, not scripts. That's cool. I didn't know about this. I'm so glad to have found this. That's great. Uh, and they, they liken it to no script. So that's fantastic. I'm installing it now. Thank you. Uh, question uh, six from Greg in Brisbane, Australia. He wonders about IPv6 and Shields Up. I'm currently uh, trialing IPv6 on my home connection with my ISP in Australia internode. That's neat that internode offers that. Curiously, there appear to be no testing sites such as Shields Up that support testing an IPv6 firewall. Do you plan to do that? I do. Um, I've got a call into level three. My um, the the guys who provide bandwidth to GRC to say, hey guys, I'm I'm liking all my IPv4s. I'm going to need some provisioning of IPv6. And uh, I have not heard yet back from them, but I'm sure they must have this. I mean, I, they probably have to just push a button somewhere and I get a bunch of IPv6 IPs. And when I do, um, I think it's uh, definitely a priority for me to make Shields Up run over IPv6. Yay. So no, I don't have a date yet, but uh, it's definitely going to happen. And you can, of course, go to um, Hurricane Electric in the U.S., and they're offering IPv6 tunneling. If you want to play with IPv6, they have free tunnels. Randall Schwartz was telling me he's got like five IPv6 addresses for free. <laughs> Actually, no, wait a minute. He has he has like a, a Class B block because there's so many IPv6 oh. addresses. I think he has 65,000 of them. I can't remember. Some huge number. Yep, that, that would be a B class. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's, there's so many, you can have as many as you want. How many do you like? Take, How many do take, you like? Take 20,000. They're free. Yeah. Um, question seven. Ant, is it a lot of work, by the way, for you to make IPv6 compatibility in, in Shields Up? Or is that something not too no, true? No, true. it's just sort of like, you know, I just have to refocus myself. <laughs> It'll be fun. <laughs> Steve, you have way too many things on your punch list now. <laughs> I've got a big one that I haven't talked about yet. but maybe Oh, next dear. Time. Okay, good. Look forward to it. Um, question seven, Anthony Woodall in Santa Rosa, California, just up the road a piece. Comments about the IE6 countdown. We talked about that webpage where Microsoft's urging people to dump IE6. I just thought I'd mention that some businesses are using IE6 internally, Internet Explorer version six, and are probably not included in the IE6 countdown website. This is true within the company that I work for. Yeah, I suppose if you have an intranet that is written to IE6, which mm -hmm. is... Not uncommon. He says, yeah. we're using a heavily customized with code IE6 for all of the web-style internal network resources. There you go. Also, I remember you mentioned that a specific government in Europe has refused to move to IE6 because they have so much custom code. Yeah, we did talk about that a while ago. And, you know, this is the, this is the I guess it's a conundrum that Microsoft is in because 6 happened and was, at, at, in its day... Very good and very dominant. Yeah. And, you know, Firefox, or I guess back then Mozilla probably, or Netscape, they, they were still struggling. There really wasn't any strong competition. But Microsoft also was not following standards. They were just adamantly saying, 
We're going to go do these things our way. I've been fighting that for the last two weeks because I'm now writing JavaScript code that needs to be platform agnostic. And half of my code is dealing with the fact that Microsoft handles events that happen on the web page completely differently from everyone else. I'm, I believe that they finally got with the plan with IE9. But look, we're, here we're trying to kill off IE6, which is a decade old, not to mention 7 and 8 that have, you know, since then. So, you know, no code is going to be able to, to not take Internet Explorer into account until not only 6, but then 7 and 8 also stop being used. And that's never going to happen. Yeah. Eesh. So... Yeah, so it, it certainly is the case. My, 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 I mean, Microsoft is is guilty of of really defying standards even after they existed. Well, because at the time they thought maybe they would win. I mean, they remember, thought they'd they were, be the standard. Yeah. Yes. I mean, they they were using Visual Basic for scripting. You know, VB <laughs> script. Ooh. Yeah, you're not going to see that anymore. That one lost big time. Yeah. But uh, it certainly is the case that people can't give up IE6 without investing a huge amount in, in you know, re-engineering. And the question is, why would they? Their system's working now. Of course, what's going to happen is that the IE6 support will disappear, and they'll end up with a browser with lots of vulnerabilities. Well, but is that a problem if it's only on the intranet? If they kept it, as long as they didn't use it, to go outside, then you're right. That could just be a separate application. Although the problem is IE has never lived along other instances of IE oh. very happily. You know, whenever you install IE, that's the whole Microsoft, oh, no, it's part of the operating system. Right. Nonsense from, from the, um, from the um, uh, trust, the antitrust suits. Right. Where they were saying, "Oh no, you can't." You know, notice I have no problem with Opera and Netscape and Firefox and everything else and Safari and Chrome all loaded in my OS at the same time. Except, oh no, I can't have two versions of IE. So I was like, "Okay, fine." Uh, curious. I'm thinking um, if they, they would be possible to make network policies that said you could use IE internally only. Yeah, they could lock it down and then give you Chrome or something or Firefox. Yeah, or people maybe are going to want to use one browser, though. I know. I look at my office staff, and they've got a bra- They're all using IE. They just well, it's the browser. It's on Windows. It's the one that's there. It's what I got. Yeah. So it's kind of would be very difficult, very challenging for uh, IT to say, okay, IE six for our intranet. But the minute you want to go outside the intranet, you got to launch Chrome. Ah, uh, good point. You wouldn't you wouldn't switch to IE nine because it, it would you, you conflict couldn't. with IE. Right. You would switch to an, an Firefox off, to a, or something. Yes, exactly. But you'd have to somehow enforce a policy and. Yeah, you hmm. might be able to get IE to refuse to go out. Yeah. Like, oh, you'd lock it down. You just lock it down with the with the uh, security and say right. you can only use intranets. That's easy. Yeah. But then just, what happens is your user calls you and says. My browser here doesn't work. I'm trying to go to right. Amazon. Right. And you say, remember I told you you have to use Firefox to go to Amazon? What's Firefox? <laughs> I just, I don't, what's Internet Explorer? I just, my, the Internet is broken. That's the problem. <laughs> and I love users, by the way, and that's not you. I'm not talking about you. It's that other person next Any to Any of our listeners. No, yeah. Nobody listens to this show. No. The Internet is broken. <laughs> <laughs> help me. See, they don't want that call. Uh, final question from Kevin York, who's in our IRC. He is Wicked Proxy. That sounds dangerous. 
Uh, he's in Harrisburg, Illinois, in the real world. He says, hmm. malware hides in strange places. He was looking at an article on Al Jazeera with a disturbing sentence that, if true, could be a game changer in computer security. By the way, I just want to point out, Al Jazeera is a highly respected and excellent news source. Even during this earthquake, they've been great. So it's not just yeah. Middle East coverage. And they are not owned or run by terrorists, as some seem to think. Right. They're, they're great. And so this is an article on Al Jazeera English about... Um, it's an opinion article about... Uh, well, it says, quote, even next-generation rootkits were explored to remain active despite the removal of a hard drive to persist on a machine in the video card memory. Uh-huh. It's been the case, to the best of my knowledge, that if you wipe or replace the hard drive and put in a fresh install of the OS, you should have a clean machine. That's the advice I always give our listeners on the on the radio show. Rational. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do if it's sitting in the CMOS or on a, a memory in a video card or some other firmware? He says, if things can live on your video card, what are you going to do? This is at least... This is the this is at the least troublesome and scary to think what would happen if this were to get in the wrong hands. It's in the wrong hands, I'm sure. But who is to say whose hands are the right ones? Yeah, <laughs> he points um, out. <laughs> a, a number of people picked up on this and said, "Hey Steve, can malware live in video cards?" And the answer is unfortunately, yes. Wow. We you know, think about how powerful our video cards yep. have become. Yep. I mean, they're computers in themselves. Yes, they are more there is more processing power now in the video chips, in the video cards, than there is on the motherboard. Yep. I mean, no matter how many cores you've got on your Intel processor, notice when we were talking about Bitcoin, it's the guys who are minting the Bitcoins are using the GPUs, the graphics processing units, on their video cards that are getting 140,000 hashes per second, where I'm getting five. 5,000 right. hashes per second. And I've got the state-of-the-art i7 quad-core, yeah. you know, and this is on a, you know, and there, so so the the video card technology has gone crazy and they've all got flash updatable firmware now. Well, that's how the viruses are living. There is malware that is able to live in a video card um, and, you know, that's just another area that the bad guys have explored. Unbelievable. So, Wow. It's not good. It's, you know, a side effect of the complexity. We always get this when we get complexity. So Whether format your video card. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't just unplug it, right? The video card, it's a, it's a static RAM or whatever it is. It's firmware. Yeah, so you would need to you need probably. to reflash the firmware BIOS, the the BIOS of the video card, wow. you know, with a you know a, from from the manufacturer's clean copy in order to make sure that nothing was living in there. If you if if you thought and and were suspicious of of something having crawled into your video card, unfortunately, it's now possible. Wow. I just sometimes I despair. <laughs> Leo, we're getting old. Uh, if we can hang in here for another couple of decades, we can just say, okay, we're done with all this stuff. Yeah. We turn it over to the young whippersnappers. Next week, uh, that was our Q&A session. Um, yep. Have you decided what you're going to cover next week? If I, if I can, I'd like to give a thorough look at IE9. Great. Um, really cover it from stem to stern, what's new, what they've done, what the security is, what the implications are, what and, and also the, the, the privacy factors, which I think are a, a big addition to IE9. Can't wait. IE9, nail it all. time permitting, 
If you have questions for our next Q&A episode, which will be a couple of episodes hence, you can go to grc.com slash feedback. Leave those questions there. While you're at GRC, get Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. You'll find 16 kilobit versions of these shows as well as the full audio fidelity versions. Those are for people who don't want to spend the bandwidth or they've got bandwidth caps. Uh, and they sound pretty good. They're not, you know, they're a little crunchy, but they sound pretty good. You can read the transcripts. That's the smallest version. Uh, thanks to Steve, uh, who pays Elaine to make those transcripts uh, available. I really appreciate that. That's at grc.com. And a lot of freebies, including Shields Up. Uh, it's all at, all there. Gibson Research Corporation. You should follow Steve on Twitter if you're not. I think we're going to see some more interesting tweets from him about this nuclear situation. SGGRC is his official Twitter handle. SGGRC. And we record this show uh, live every Wednesday around 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time at live.twit.tv. So do tune in for that. Steve, I thank you for a great show. Fascinating show. Thanks, Leo. Great as always. I'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.